Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? You know the word association game? Let's play image association. What comes to mind when I say eating disorder? Oh, yes. The 24-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed white girl who's standing emaciating looking at her distorted image in front of a mirror. Our guest today is going to debunk that myth and change the narrative. Jeeva Wilkerson, MA, MPA, Masters of Public Communications, is a graduate of the University of Pittsburgh and Indiana State. And she's going to spill the tea on that myth. And when I say tea, I don't mean the no sugar, honey, or milk kind, the matcha, triple cream, frothy version. On this show, changing the narrative means telling the truth. The truth is Jeeva has recovered from her eating disorder, and it's through that journey, her perspective on life, social justice, activism, and health have deeply changed her. I too know recovery and the rocky road to telling the truth, being in the truth, and sharing the truth. A partner in crime, eating disorder and recovery coach and fellow warrior, Jeeva Wilkerson. Welcome, Jeeva. Thank you so much, Susie. It's such a pleasure to be here. And I have to say one thing. I didn't go to Indiana State. I went to IU in Bloomington. That's a big rivalry there. You can't mix those two up. Oh, apologies. trouble. I went to IU, Indiana University. I'm a Hoosier. It must have been my <laughs> dyslexia. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. I don't want any of us to get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Hoosiers take that quite seriously. Very. I said it off the air. I'll say it on. I love your name. And I'm so happy that you're here to be with us today. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So very glad to be here. Okay. So knowing you have an eating disorder or had an eating disorder or in recovery from eating disorder, in our community, it can be a challenge. And by our community, the global majority, specifically the Black community, there's so many cultural implications. So can you explain how you knew early on that you had an eating disorder and what that looked like? So the interesting thing is I didn't, like many other people, I thought they were young, thin, middle-class white women. I remember I'm an eighties baby, so I'm aging myself here, but I remember the movie, the love for the love of Nancy starring Tracy gold from growing pains. And that was the first time I saw anyone with an eating disorder It was about her and her eating disorder. And she was emaciated just as Susie was talking about. And I knew I had a strange relationship to food early on in my life. I knew that I was thinking about dieting and losing weight more than anyone else I knew, or definitely not any of my peers. And, but it, Eating disorder never made that association. And I think I was in denial about that throughout most of my eating disorder because I never looked like what, or I never had actually one looked like anybody who had an eating disorder. And two, I had never been diagnosed with an eating disorder. That didn't happen until later on in my life. And I didn't know. I knew that I cared a lot about how I looked. I cared a lot about calorie counting and what I put in my body and exercise. But the association between that and eating disorder, certainly something being unhealthy about that, it never occurred to me. So what kind of community did you grow up in? I grew up in a predominantly Black community. I'm from a Black family. I'm from the inner city of Philadelphia. Philly. Philly. 
Yeah, I'm a Philly girl. Yes, I'm a Philly <laughs> girl. And eating disorders are not something that most people talk about. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're seen as an affluent illness, just judging by how much treatment costs. Let's just throw that out there. So it's not something that's really discussed. It's not something that's really well known about. But our society being thin, having low body fat, all these different things, diet culture is so pervasive that it's normal. I never, and I want to say this because the majority of people with eating disorders are not quote unquote underweight, whatever that means. So I mm -hmm. never got to the point where I was emaciated or was told that I was underweight. Okay. There were points in my, dis my eating disorder where I had lost significant amounts of weight. I look very different than I do right now, but it was nothing to make people outside of maybe my immediate circle. I would never alarm them or cause the doctors to get concerned or to say anything. And that's for most people with eating disorders. We have to remember that you can't look at someone and determine whether or not they have an eating disorder. So I think for those reasons, I never thought of my, about myself as being unhealthy or having an eating disorder. So in your community and in your peer group, People never said, why aren't you eating? Yeah, people said, why aren't you eating? And I said I was on a diet because everybody's on a diet all the time. That was just normal, especially in college. You go to college, you pick up certain eating habits, and then they call it the freshman 15, and people do those things. And then people start to diet. And okay. being consumed with your weight is something that's so normalized in our society. We could probably list five people right now at the top of our heads who are on a diet right now. Or just in normal conversation, people talking about their bodies in negative ways, talking about, I need to lose this amount of weight, summer body. Mm -hmm. I can't wear this because I don't have the right body. That's normal talk for many people. So when it I was doing it, it was accepted. It is, but there's also the cultural implication. I mean, the Black community, when you're talking about your body, it's not necessarily, I have to lose so much weight. It sounds different. It looks different. And so it's curious to me that other black people in the community weren't like, girl, you're too thin. So the thing, I heard that from my family. Definitely people said you're too thin, but I had always been very athletic as well. Okay. So when you're athletic and you're working out, that's just assumed you're going to look that way. And it's really interesting you say that because I feel like I actually wrote my master's thesis on African-American beauty aesthetics. This is something I spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about. We have, we have our own set of beauty standards within our community, but by the same token, we still live here. And then as a result of that, we have this hybrid kind of beauty aesthetic that actually right now, if you look at Instagram, oh my God, please don't, but you have mm. to, <laughs> when you look at it, you see this very unrealistic standard, yes. particularly for women's bodies. So you're supposed to have this tiny little waist. <laughs> you're supposed to have these huge breasts and this huge rare end mm. and no body fat, no cellulite, right. no stretch marks anywhere. We would like to believe that in African-American culture, particularly Black American culture, that we, we don't subscribe to Eurocentric beauty ideals or body standards. That's just not the truth anymore. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, you're absolutely right. Probably in the last 10 years, it's really infiltrated the cultural piece in a way. It's horrifying to me. It's the Eurocentric mentality has come over to what our cultural aesthetic is in terms of shapeliness. And so it seems like we've modified that even more to the extreme. So we're still being influenced, even though they're trying to come to our side of the fence. It's very disturbing. Yeah, Black women don't even define Black beauty for women ourselves. Right. It was defined by someone else and then projected upon us. Now we're just almost trying to catch up to look like ourselves, which is very That's it. That is profound what you just said. That's profound. Trying to look like ourselves. That's amazing. Wow, that's powerful. Okay, so you said that you had some therapy, you had guidance from your family. How did you find culturally competent or culturally aware therapy that informed you're shaking your head? No, <laughs> no, 
No, I didn't. I ended up going to a therapist who happened to be a lovely woman who happened to be white. And it was the first time this was deep into my eating disorder. Okay. I was an adult at this point. I was talking to her about just, I kept mentioning food and body and dieting and this obsession with it. And she said, do you think you have an eating disorder? I said, no. And I thought I, I'm an intelligent woman. I, it crossed my mind, but until then, no. And at that point, it never occurred to me. And she started talking to me and trying to treat me for my eating disorder, but it never occurred to me that there were other aspects of my treatment and my healing that needed to happen outside of what was happening with me and this woman, this wonderful woman who happened to be white. There were so many aspects of my identity that I had to really go in and explore to be able to really get true healing so I could conquer this eating disorder. I appreciate you saying that. And I'm not resisting that she was a lovely woman, but I do want to emphasize, <clears throat> excuse me, the importance of the cultural awareness piece. Oh yeah. You can't just treat a black woman like a white woman in therapy. And that's become my charge in life. You have to know the difference. So I appreciate you clarifying what piece was missing for you because there was only one part of yourself being treated, the eating disordered part. Mm -hmm. There's a oh, whole yeah. cultural identity piece that was missing that you had to figure out how to put together on your own. And thank God you did. Oh, definitely. It's interesting. Right now, I'm an eating disorder coach and I primarily work with people of color. Most of my clients are black. And even when I was running support groups in the past, I've been doing this for over four years at this point. When I'm running groups with people of color, we're talking about the food. We're talking about the body. We're talking about the racism. We're talking about the otherness. We're talking about the marginalization. We're talking about not owning our body, feeling like we have to shrink our bodies sometimes in order to fit into spaces, in order to not be seen, or in order to imposter syndrome, all these things that are really specific to people of color. And then when we're talking about specifically around Black people, we're talking about anti-Blackness. We're talking about fat phobia. We're yeah. talking about being attacked on all sides. Yeah. And so those things are so significant to our identity and to ultimately to our healing, it can't be left out. I just can't. I love it. I can't get enough of it, but I'm going to ask another question. So I read this quote in an article. I'm just going to read it directly. It's about soul food. The style of cooking originated during American slavery. African slaves were given only the leftovers, the undesirable cuts of meat. Their masters, while the white slave owners got the neediest cuts of food, roasts, etc. How has that informed the mixed messages in our society. Because then we're told the staples in our community are horrible after it's what we were raised on. And I'm pretty much a vegetarian eater, but I still have that cultural connection. And I have, and I take offense to the language that's used to denounce what is deeply in, ingrained in our culture, as well as it's comfort food. So can you talk about that? That's a big question you're asking. Mm -hmm. no. So there's a part of me that's Shiva, who's just black woman and wants to talk about that aspect. But there's also, we're talking about diet culture. We're talking about the idea of comfort food, all those different things. So the eating disorder coach, I, I have so many different perspectives yeah. on this. But I will say that black culture is often attacked. And we are often told that many aspects of our of just our culture in general, our music, the way we dress, the way we speak, the what we eat, all those things are always just not good enough. Mm -hmm. When it comes to, we're talking about eating disorders, we're talking about food, it's all about balance, right? So I myself am someone who, I eat an, a balanced diet. I eat, I eat my soul food, I eat salt, I eat sugar, I eat fried foods, I do I eat all those things, but I also understand that I have to eat things that are high in nutrients to be able to balance myself out because I want to be able to live life, the life that I 
um, the life that I determine is healthiest for me. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that means a balance. What I found is that a black person in recovery from an eating disorder does not have to do no, no, let me just say this. There are tons of different types of eating disorders. So let's just back that up too, because there are, I think we often, and this is another uh, stereotype, we often think about anorexia nervosa as being the only eating disorder, people restricting what they eat. There's also bulimia, which there are high amounts of bulimia in the African-American community in particular. Mm -hmm. When I say bulimia, I'm talking about purging food, whether that's through vomiting or other methods to rid yourself of food. And so depending on what kind of eating disorder you have, that's going to that's going to dictate the kind of relationship you have to food. Yeah. Now we do also have binge eating and some people refer to it as overeating, which does occur in all populations. And it does occur in the African-American community as well. Now when we're talking about particularly people who binge or overeat. There's a lot of stigma there. So people often want to police what they're eating as well. And if you're a black person, you're in a black body. If you're in a large black body and you're a binge eater and you're eating soul food, you're going to be stigmatized even more. So what I often tell them, is you got to get let all that go. Okay. All that messaging that's telling you what you're eating is bad or wrong. You got to let that go. It's really about finding a healthy relationship to the food. It's why you're eating it. Okay. Are you eating it to make, to dull your emotions? Are you eating it to get some kind of fulfillment or are you eating it because you enjoy it? Now, if you're eating the food because you enjoy it and you, and you are in, happy in your body, no matter what shape you're in, live your life, go on and thrive. Okay. But if you're eating the food as a method of comfort, and I'm not saying that felt good in my body, yeah. but, mm-hmm. and to dull your senses or to give you a sense of peace or to help you feel a sense of control, then that can be a challenge. And what you eat, if you're eating too much of it, and it has high concentrations of salt or trans fat and those things, it could affect your health. And so we talk about balance there, but not just balance in what you eat, a more a balance in how you see the food and what you're using the food for. Hopefully I answered your question. Yeah, beautiful. So great. Lizzo has been a really amazing spokesperson and she's gotten a lot of heat and it's been horrible and she still prevails. And I just have so much respect for and appreciation for who she is and being who she is, proud of who she is and being beautiful in the body she has. It's horrible that she's made to feel that she has to represent something else. And then it's a double-edged sword because if someday she does decide to change her size, then it's Mm -hmm. going to be looked at as, see, we were right. That's not fair either. Like people get to change their minds about how they want to look and it shouldn't be such a statement or a stigma attached to it. Yeah. And I feel this now as being one of the few uh, eating disorder coaches of color, particularly black eating disorder coaches, you're expected to be the spokesperson for everything. So she can't, everything she does is she's representing everyone and she's going to be scrutinized. So if she did decide to lose weight for whatever reason, it's her prerogative. You're right. She would be, she'd be shamed for that. She's shamed for having the body she has now. She'd be shamed for having a different body. It's interesting when you're a, a black body you and you become famous or you're put on a platform, you, fat phobia in our society is so pervasive and just and so internalized yes. by so many of us. I'm still working through my own internalized fat phobia and the things I've been told about larger bodies. We've been told that, for instance, we see before and after pictures when people lose weight before they're unhappy. They're miserable. Right. And, you know, we're supposed to associate that they're lonely. They're not, they don't have any love. They're probably poor. All these different things, these mm-hmm. things that we say are bad because mm-hmm. being single and not having money is just so bad. That's on the bigger body. And then, you know, when they lose weight, they're smiling. They've got, a, they're coupled up. They're making money. Everyone likes them. It's so unfortunate how pervasive fat phobia is, particularly if you put it on a black body. Yes. 
once you put on a black body, then it's just the hatred just yeah. is just spewed at it. And it's just, I feel so bad for her, but she's staying so strong to what she believes in. Yeah, and it's yeah. beautiful and it's inspiring. She and also so, talks about her pain yeah. in the process. So she's not separating it from feelings, Yeah, which yeah. I think is important. Yeah. I think my job as a coach is really to help people to, with people with eating disorders, to find healthy coping strategies to, so they don't use food to get through difficult moments. Because for many people, that's what they do with their eating disorder. Eating disorders are mental illnesses. This is not something people Thank choose. Thank you. They do not choose an eating disorder. For me, I, like so many people, I experienced trauma and tragedy early on in life. Mm -hmm. And as a means of trying to gain control and trying to be able to just cope and deal with the things that were going on around me, I decided I was going to control my body. That was the easiest thing. That was the thing I could grasp. That's the thing I could handle. I knew how to do that really well. And what I'm trying to help people do, like I did with myself and through the help and support of those around me, is to learn how to not have to do that, to be able to really identify my feelings, emotions, be able to reach out to support and ask people for what I need and being able to really redefine all those standards and all those beliefs for myself, because you have the, you may have the mental illness, maybe success, susceptible to an eating disorder, but we've got diet culture. We've got all this messaging telling us what we're doing is right, particularly if someone who restricts and you have the desire to lose weight. So I had to really reprogram myself and throw right. all that other garbage out the window and decide what worked for Jiva and empower right. myself to move forward. You know, you mentioned trauma and, and I think there's different layers of it. Like you talk about controlling, but there's also the overeating that has to do with protection. If I'm in this body, I can create a barrier to yes. anybody who ever wants to hurt me again. There's yes. so many layers and level to the psychological damage that comes from trauma. And then you add the racial trauma. Oh, and yeah. so it needs to be dealt with from a mental health level. So I really appreciate you emphasizing that aspect. I just learned something. And that's the historical context of BMI. And surprise, mm -hmm. it's embedded in racism. Oh, yeah. So can you talk about that? For what I know, and I'm not an expert on this, from what I know, it's based on just what a bunch of old white guys determined. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> there you go. That's what I They used themselves as reference points. And that was it. <laughs> and everyone else just fell in line with that. And it's it. I think that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> that's great. That's, we, say no more. That's it. That's right in line with the rest of the Eurocentric mentality that we talked about. Can you talk about how your experiences have shaped your perspectives on health, healing, and social justice? Yeah, definitely. I love that you mentioned racial trauma. As I work with my clients, most of which are people of color, we talk a lot, and I mentioned this before, about just not feeling comfortable in your own skin because you're told it's, you're just not good enough. Particularly when you get to a certain level and you are exposed more and more to the dominant culture where you have to operate in these areas, whether that's through education, through work environment, et cetera. And um, trying to find your own sense of identity when you're constantly told that assimilation is the only way you can make it and be safe. Let's just say safety. This is a lot of this is about safety, really mm -hmm. trying to get into a place and feel like you belong, but that also that you can cope. <laughs> and so for me, a lot of my eating disorder came around safety. So if you said before about people overeating to basically change the body so that you can feel safe, I started under eating to mm -hmm. feel safe in these environments because I felt as though if I became the quote unquote, big, loud black woman, what would happen to me? What would they do to me? Would I be safe here? And so for me, I had to really say, I don't care about that anymore. I don't care about what these people think. 
I don't care about what they're projecting onto my body. And that was hard. It was really hard. And so I had to empower myself and love myself through loving my culture, my community, other Black women, getting support through people who look like me and so that I can go in. And now I do that for other people. Now I come in and I try to be an example of what it looks like to really work on it. I'm still working through getting through working on my racial trauma and really trying to deprogram myself from all the things I was told, but helping other people do that. And that's my philosophy, particularly when I'm working with a person of color. Which is the social justice aspect of what you do. Mm -hmm. Sure. This idea of safety. I think we have to change our language as Black people and people from the global majority. I think we have to change our language to no longer buy into the idealization of safety. It's pretty clear we're not safe in this world. And I think that given the mass murder this past weekend, police violence, targeting Black people, white supremacy in charge, we have to develop a very honest language around safety and what it means to be safer, because there is no safety in a land that's run by white supremacy. And I think every time we aspire for safety, we think we're there, we get hit by this racial trauma and we're reminded, and I can't help but feel like that sends us back. So I'm beginning to think we have to develop our own language about what it means to be in safer spaces and surround ourselves with safer people because the illusion of safety truly doesn't exist for the Black body in today's society. I'm stepping on that one. That You're absolutely 100%. I can create a support group for people of color or for Black people, but it's safer Yeah. because once you log out, are you safe? And so you're absolutely right. And that's what I aim for, safer. I'm going to start using that term. I create spaces where we can come in and we can talk about those things. And mm-hmm. I'm telling you, it, everything comes up. We can't divorce living in this body from our mental illness. We can't. I just can't. It just, it's so interconnected. And that's all I do. I really, honestly, I show up. I, I Peer support is what I do. I have no problem talking about my own history of eating disorder, but also the fact that I deal with anxiety and depression. I'm not ashamed of it. And I really want to create spaces where people feel safe talking about what's going on with them. And that's where the healing starts. Really so, be able to feel safe. Or I agree with you can, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. That's okay. I agree with you completely. I'm going to take on the healing word as well. Okay, go ahead. So I did a clinical consultation. I do anti-Black racism, anti-racism clinical consultations because white therapists need to start understanding you can't call yourself trauma-informed and then not talk about racial trauma. You can't be anti-racist and call yourself a trauma-informed. I'm really taking this on with a vengeance. And and it's really pissing me off, as you can tell. And so a lot of the language in trauma-informed is healing. You can heal. And once again, you have a wound. How does it, how do you have a healing when racial trauma keeps hitting you in that same wound repeatedly? There is no healing that can occur when the violence continues. So uh, once again, like safety, to put forth this idea that there is a healing for us and it's our responsibility and all you have to do is wake up and say affirmations and, and so forth, and then it will come. It takes away the responsibility of white people and white supremacy to deconstruct itself, to decide what what healing, healthy and safety looks like for everyone, not just them. So it's problematic if we buy into this idea that there's a healing that can occur in this society. I think we're on a journey of thriving successfully. And I think we need to reframe healing as thriving because thriving to me sounds like we are empowered to do what we do but in a healthier way. And it doesn't matter what you're doing on the outside. We're going to continue this. But I think when we buy into healing, we're buying into that Eurocentric mentality of language and just good eating habits and everything's fine. Does that make sense? 
No, it does make sense. It does. And you're right. I think, so I do identify as someone who's recovered from the eating disorder. I no longer have an eating disorder. Many people do not take on that philosophy and that's for them to decide. I really honestly, doesn't bother me if someone says they're not recovered and they never will be. I will say that for me, I am on a journey and I'm seeking healing. I guess you would say that because, um, I no longer use eating disorder behaviors to get through difficult moments, but I still have difficult moments. So I think that's what you're talking about, whether that's turning on the TV and hearing that people who look like me were just murdered in a supermarket or mm-hmm. having to bump into a neighbor and have to deal with a microaggression. And mm-hmm. so I'm on this path where I'm really trying to feel more empowered so that I can be able to just dodge and be mm-hmm. able to block some of these things so that I don't have those taking me completely down. Yes. And so I do understand what you mean by yeah, it is like, the, I, the aspect of the concept of healing, complete <laughs> healing at this point is just pretty much not possible. But I love what you're saying. I love the idea of we don't have to put down our defenses to act like what's happening is not happening. But there is a way to move through the world with just enough consciousness that you are well defended and just, a much, and just enough awareness where you're not self-sabotaging and self-injuring. And that's what I hear you saying, which is what I really appreciate. Yes, definitely. I love that you said self-sabotaging and injuring because that's the, that's what it needs is. It really is just punishing yourself over and over again, even though you're feeling this pain from external places, external sources, that's a punishment of yourself. And really that's what you're seeking to do when you're seeking recovery to not internalize that and hurt yourself as a result, to do something to soothe yourself, to comfort yourself instead, because that's ultimately what you need. Yeah. People use the language I'm going to treat my, and I always talk about that. So what does it mean to treat yourself if you're doing something that's self-sabotaging or self-injuring? What are you treating yourself to? More, more burdening from the pain? You really need to walk through that and see what that means when you talk about treating yourself. I'm going to have this big old whatever, and I'm going to treat myself. Why is that framed in a way that sounds like it's healthy for you? If you want to do it, just do it, but don't call it treating yourself. Yeah, I, I use the term soothe comfort. One of the first things I do with my clients is I say, what do you do to make yourself feel good? And a lot of times the answer is I have no idea. I don't know how. Mm -hmm. And I teach them how to cultivate. And I hate this term because it's so overused, but self-care, basically just really taking care of yourself and really Mm -hmm. noticing when you're not feeling good and knowing what to do. But you, and you, and it starts by just taking out time and carving space for yourself. That's another thing that's so important, particularly for people of color, carving out space and time to really just care for yourself. That's the Mm -hmm. first thing I do with them. Take care of yourself so that when the difficult moments come, you already know what works. So you can just bump that up to take care of yourself. But it's about comfort and soothing. I don't know about this whole treating thing. I've never heard anyone say that, but that's really interesting. Oh, you never heard that? Really? No. I hear that all the time. I hear that all the time. I'm going to treat myself to a big old Sunday. Oh, give myself a treat. Oh, that? Okay, I got you. I got you. Oh, okay. Okay. I said it incorrectly. Yeah. I'm going to give myself a treat. I had a hard week. I'm going to give myself a treat. I'm going to overindulge in something that's ultimately going to make me physically ill (laughs) because I had a hard week. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad you, I'm glad you asked that. So that clarified it. Okay. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Tell us how you became trained in a, in sexual assault crisis counseling. Oh, wow. You're taking me back. That was years ago. Just really, I myself have been the victim of sexual assault and 
And at the time, I really wasn't even really ready to face that. But I had just so many friends who had dealt with sexual violence. And I've always been pretty good. I think this is something a lot of people with eating disorders in particular, like I said, we can take on a lot because we do so many harmful things to ourselves. So I think I was just so I'm good at absorbing a lot of people's. And because I had that capability, that capacity, I wanted to give back because I had so many people around me who had dealt with sexual violence. I decided that I wanted to train to become a rape crisis counselor. Right, right. Race crisis call counselor. I don't know what the term was at the time. <laughs> That's great. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. So many people have carried trauma and, and not identified it and dealt with it in a way that, that allows them to thrive more healthfully. So I really appreciate you disclosing that. And so was that a part of your mental health first aid training as well? No, actually. So my journey, so it's so interesting. I just... I've picked up these things along the way. So I think I initially, I worked in the Philadelphia school system for 10 plus years working with young people. And I just kept seeing there was just, there was so much pain. Let's just put it that way. They were experiencing so much pain. So I've always been curious how to really not necessarily treat or because I'm not a clinician, I'm not a therapist, but really how do you really interact with people so they feel a little bit more safe with you? a little Mm -hmm. bit more comfortable. And so that's why I got into mental health first aid, just really understanding. I've dealt with students who are having panic attacks and people say, oh, they're being violent, they're acting out. No, this are upset. They're dealing with a mental health crisis at this moment. They're overwhelmed. They're probably, who knows what happened last night? Who knows what happened this morning? Mm -hmm. And so really knowing how to engage with that young person. So that's where I really got interested in this. And I did mental health first aid. Then I got into the sexual assault crisis helpline work. And then now- and I'm working specifically in eating disorders. Okay, so then let's add in the vinyasa yoga. Yes, oh, yoga. So yoga, for me, I was always really athletic. That was part of my eating disorder, just having to just really burn calories, be quote unquote fit, all these terms I no longer use. And and then someone said, I saw yoga and I thought it was really cool. And it was this whole idea of this yoga body thing too. And that was just really interesting. And I was like, I knew I needed something more gentle because I was on my journey to recovery and in my recovery journey or whatever you want to phrase it. And I was like, I need to step away from the gym. This is not good for me, but I still wanted to move. I love movement. And so I got into yoga and I got to the class and I expected to burn all these calories and they were just breathing and moving and talking about connecting with your body. And I'm just like, what is this nonsense? (laughs) And then I actually started listening to the teacher and it helped me develop a relationship to my body. I never had to feel my body to actually take ownership and connect with my body. So really there were parts of my body. I had never explored. I never looked at my body really until I did yoga, feeling my body, connecting with the strength I had and recognizing that there are so many strong, beautiful bodies that are in a yoga class that look so different. And so that's, and that was a part of my healing journey, really taking yoga, breathing, connecting, understanding how my body works, appreciating and respecting my body. And so then I just had to have it. I had to have all of it. So I decided to train as a a yoga teacher. And from there, my own practice developed. I started teaching and now I teach in a way that is really body positive. I'm not going to say that anybody can walk in my class, my classes, (laughs) I push people and we have a good time, but it's all about really, I want people to feel inspired by their bodies. I want them to be proud of themselves when they walk out of my class. And as an eating disorder coach and as someone who's recovered from the eating disorder, who loves yoga, I use yoga as a way of helping people feel proud of their bodies and understanding how beautiful they are and how powerful they are, regardless of what society tells you it's supposed to look like and what you're supposed to be able to do with it. That's great. Look, I love yoga. Yoga doesn't always love me, but I do. I do love it. I love the idea that 
you only do what your body allows you to do. I love that idea. I love that only go as far as you, your body tells you to go. Yeah. I think that's really important. So talk about your belief in the power of education, peer support, and fair and equal access to healthcare, which is- Wow. Huge. Okay. Huh. All right. Education. One, I come, that's why I talk about my eating disorder. I'm like, I never thought I would spend all my days talking about mental illness, about, particularly <laughs> about my own. <laughs> but I show up in space and I say, hey, I had an eating disorder. Hey, this is what it is. So that's education is this what I do. Every time I show up in a space and I represent myself as Jiva, a Black woman from Philly, grew up, grew up in a low-income household, all those different things. Yes, me, I'm visible. So that's what I'm all about. And then peer support. Oh my God, I'm currently in the process of studying to be a peer support specialist through and being certified in this state of New York, which is really excited about because you, it's, I'm realizing now peer support is changing the game. It's changing how we look at mental illness. It's changing how we look at treatment. It's changing my perspective. And I think it should change the game in general. Have, empowering people to take authority over their own wellness, their own health, their own treatment, I think is just so important. And destigmatizing mental illness yes. in particular is so important. You asked me earlier, you know, what they, my the people around me, I didn't talk to anybody about my eating disorder. There was so much shame about around it, particularly when you're in this body, you feel like you're the only one. And when I show up in spaces and I talk to people who look like me, it's, it, the, it's so powerful that connection, being able to say, you know what, and I survived this thing and I'm thriving and I love myself and I love my body is so important. And that's why I'm just like, peer support is the key because people are seeing that they're saying, oh, wow, how did you do it? And we're having conversation now. And then now they feel like they can have a conversation and hopefully they feel like they have a conversation with their treatment provider and say, no, actually I have other people around me who I've had this conversation with. And I feel and they've dealt with it and they're thriving and they're surviving, they've survived and they're thriving. I can do that too. I feel more empowered to come and tell you what I need. And I think that's just so important. Yeah. You're talking about another piece too, which is that people from the global majority, people of color, us, we are a collective community. We are re highly relational. We are collective. We are collaborative. And the Eurocentric culture is individualistic. It's all about I. And so when you come in and you have a conversation with people, you're building relationships. And so when you talk about peer support, that's community. So it mm -hmm. absolutely makes sense. And I do think it's a way to help destigmatize mental illness and mental health issues. People get so scared by mental illness. But if you say mental mm -hmm. health issues, yeah. I think it's a little bit more user friendly when it's really just the same thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Community is so important. That's actually, I was jotting down my notes prior to this conversation. I was like, I have to mention community because that's, that's why people reach out to me. They see me. I do a lot of support groups and I just I'm opening up another support group this summer. Shameless plug. And, oh, there's going to be more. Plug. There's more. It's a BIPOC support group. And I've had people I released the interest list and people are just like coming in because they're looking for a community. We feel so isolated, particularly with eating disorders, again, because of all the shame and the stigma and the fact that people think it's something you're doing to yourself. It must be intentional. It's not really there's nothing wrong with you, really. This is a choice. And to be able to come in and feel a sense safer, let me say that, and <laughs> having a safer space where you can connect with people and talk about what's really going on and not feel alone is just so important. Now you get to have some really shameless plugging. First, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story, this wealth of information, being open to all the questions. And please tell everyone where they can find you, how they can find you and get them into those support groups. Go for it. Definitely. So Instagram, even though don't go and look at all the 
that stuff on it. But definitely check out my page at Jeeva Wilkerson. You can also go to jeevawilkerson.com and learn more about my services. And you can always email me at recovery at jeevawilkerson.com. Perfect. Now you said that quickly, so I'm going to have you say it again. Of course. And let me spell it out because my name is difficult to spell. So it's at Jeeva Wilkerson. That's G-I-V-A-W-I-L-K-E-R-S-O-N. That's jeevawilkerson.com. And then also recovery at jeevawilkerson.com if you want to email me. Perfect. I'm going to let you have the final word, but first, again, I want to thank you so much for your time. And I'm so glad Susie made the connection with you and we got to have you on. What you're doing is so important for our community. And it's so important for people in general to understand that their pain is real and we're here to validate it and to support them in figuring out how to thrive in the most successful way they can. So you get the final word. You know what? Recovery is possible. Support is available. You are not alone. Reach out, ask anyone that you feel safe, safer, asking for support. And if you don't have anyone, reach out to me. Love it. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. JD and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.